Chapter 93 The Castaway It was but some few days after encountering the Frenchman that a most significant event befell the most insignificant of the Pequod's crew, an event most lamentable, and which ended in providing the sometimes madly merry and predestinated craft with a living and ever-accompanying prophecy of whatever shattered sequel might prove her own. Now, in the whale ship, it is not everyone that goes in the boats. Some few hands are reserved called shipkeepers, whose province it is to work the vessel while the boats are pursuing the whale. As a general thing, these shipkeepers are as hardy fellows as the men comprising the boat's crews. But if there happen to be an unduly slender, clumsy, or timorous white in the ship, that white is certain to be made a shipkeeper. It was so in the Pequod, with the little boy Pippin, by nickname Pip, by abbreviation. Poor Pip, ye have heard of him before. Ye must remember his tambourine on that dramatic midnight, so gloomy jolly. In outer aspect, Pip and Doughboy made a match, like a black pony and a white one, of equal developments, though of dissimilar color, driven in one eccentric span. But while hapless Doughboy was by nature dull and torpid in his intellects, Pip, though over-tender-hearted, was at bottom very bright, with a pleasant, genial, jolly brightness. Pip loved life and all life's peaceable securities, so that the panic-stricken business in which he had somehow unaccountably become entrapped had most sadly blurred his brightness. Though, as ere long will be seen, what was thus temporarily subdued in him, in the end was destined to be luridly illumined by strange wildfires that fictitiously showed him off to ten times the natural luster with which in his native Tolland County in Connecticut had once enlivened many a fiddler's frolic on the green, and at melodious eventide with his gay ha-ha had turned the round horizon into one star-belled tambourine. So, though in the clear air of day, suspended against a blue-veined neck, the pure-water diamond drop with healthful glow, yet when the cunning jeweler would show you the diamond in its most impressive luster, he lays it against the gloomy ground, and then lights it up, not by the sun, but by some unnatural gases. Then come out these fiery effluences, infernally superb, Then the evil blazing diamond, once the divinest symbol of the crystal skies, looks like some crown jewel stolen from the king of hell. But let us to the story. It came to pass that in the Ambergris affair, Stubbs, after oarsman, chanced so to sprain his hand, as for a time to become quite maimed, and temporarily Pip was put into his place. The first time Stubb lowered with him, Pip evinced much nervousness, but happily, for that time, escaped close contact with the whale, and therefore came off not altogether discreditably, though Stubb, observing him, took care afterwards to exhort him to cherish his courageousness to the utmost, for he might often find it needful. Now, upon the second lowering, the boat paddled upon the whale, and as the fish received the darted iron, it gave its customary rap, which happened in this instance to be right under poor Pip's seat. The involuntary consternation of the moment caused him to leap, 
paddle in hand, out of the boat, and in such a way that part of the slack whale line coming against his chest, he breasted it overboard with him so as to become entangled in it, when at last plumping into the water. That instant, the stricken whale started on a fierce run. The line swiftly straightened, and presto, poor Pip came all foaming up to the chocks of the boat, remorselessly dragged there by the line, which had taken several turns around his chest and neck. Tashtigo stood in the bows. He was full of the fire of the hunt. He hated Pip for a poltroon. Snatching the boat knife from its sheath, he suspended its sharp edge over the line, and turning toward Stubb, exclaimed interrogatively, Cut? Meantime, Pip's blue, choked face plainly looked, Do, for God's sake. All passed in a flash. In less than half a minute, this entire thing happened. Damn him cut, roared Stubb, and so the whale was lost, and Pip was saved. So soon as he recovered himself, the poor little boy was assailed by yells and excretions from the crew. Tranquilly permitting these irregular cursings to evaporate, Stubb, then in a plain business-like but still half-humorous manner, cursed Pip officially, and that done unofficially gave him much wholesome advice. The substance was, never jump from a boat, Pip, except, but all the rest was indefinite, as the soundest advice ever is. Now, in general, stick to the boat is your true motto in whaling. But cases will sometimes happen when leap from the boat is still better. Moreover, as if perceiving at last that if he should give undiluted, conscientious advice to Pip, who would be leaving him too wide a margin to jump in for the future, Stubb suddenly dropped all advice and concluded with a peremptory command, "'Stick to the boat, Pip, or by the Lord, I won't pick you up if you jump. Mind that. We can't afford to lose whales by the likes of you. A whale would sell for thirty times what you would, Pip, in Alabama. Bear that in mind, and don't jump any more.' Hereby, perhaps Stubb indirectly hinted that though man loved his fellow— Yet man is a money-making animal, which propensity too often interferes with his benevolence. But we are all in the hands of the gods, and Pip jumped again. It was under very similar circumstances to the first performance, but this time he did not breast out the line, and hence, when the whale started to run, Pip was left behind on the sea like a hurried traveler's trunk. Alas, Stubb was but too true to his word. It was a beautiful, bounteous blue day, the spangled sea calm and cool and flatly stretching away all round to the horizon, like the gold-beater's skin hammered out to the extremist. Bobbing up and down in that sea, Pip's head showed like a head of cloves. No boat knife was lifted when he fell so rapidly astern. Stubb's back was turned upon him, and the whale was winged. In three minutes a whole mile of shoreless ocean was between Pip and Stubb. Out from the center of the sea poor Pip turned his crisp, curling head to the sun, another lonely castaway, though the loftiest and the brightest. Now, in calm weather, to swim in the open ocean is as easy as the practice swimmer as to ride in a spring carriage ashore. 
but the awful lonesomeness is intolerable. The intense concentration of self in the middle of such a heartless immensity. My God, who can tell it? Mark how when sailors in a dead calm bathe in the open sea, mark how closely they hug their ship and only coast along her sides. But had Stubb really abandoned the, the poor little boy to his fate? No, he did not mean to, at least, because there were two boats in his wake, and he supposed, no doubt, that they would, of course, come up to Pip very quickly and pick him up. Though, indeed, such considerations towards oarsmen, jeopardized through their own timidity, is not always manifested by the hunters in all similar instances, and such instances not unfrequently occur. Almost invariably in the fishery, a coward, so-called, is marked with the same ruthless detestation peculiar to military navies and armies. But it so happened that those boats, without seeing Pip, suddenly spying whales close to them on one side, turned and gave chase. And Stubb's boat was now so far away, and he and all his crew so intent upon his fish, that Pip's ringed horizon began to expand around him miserably. By the merest chance, the ship itself at last rescued him. But from that hour, the little boy went about the deck an idiot. Such, at least, they said he was. The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but drowned the infinite of his soul. Not drowned entirely, though. Rather, carried down alive to wondrous depths, where strange shapes of the unwarped primal world glided to and fro before his massive eyes, and the miser merman, wisdom, revealed his hoarded heaps. And among the joyous, heartless, ever-juvenile eternities, Pip saw the multitudinous, God-omnipresent, coral insects that out of the firmament of waters heaved the colossal orbs. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom, and spoke it, and therefore his shipmates called him mad, so man's insanity is heaven's sense. And wandering from all mortal reason, man comes at last to that celestial thought, which to reason is absurd and frantic, and weal or woe feels then uncompromised, indifferent as his God. For the rest, blame not Stubb too hardly. The thing is common in that fishery, and in the sequel of the narrative, it will then be seen what like abandonment befell myself. Chapter 94 A Squeeze of the Hand That whale of stubs, so dearly purchased, was duly brought to the Pequod's side, where all those cutting and hoisting operations previously detailed were regularly gone through, even to the bailing of the Heidelberg Tun, or Case. While some were occupied with this latter duty, Others were employed in dragging away the larger tubs, so soon as filled with the sperm, and when the proper time arrived, this same sperm was carefully manipulated ere going to the triworks, of which anon. It had cooled and crystallized to such a degree that when, with several others, I sat down before a large Constantine's bath of it, I found it strangely concreted into lumps, here and there rolling about in the liquid part, it was our business to squeeze these lumps back into fluid. A sweet and unctuous duty. 
No wonder that in old times this sperm was such a favorite cosmetic. Such a clearer, such a softener, such a delicious mollifier. After having my hands in it for only a few minutes, my fingers felt like eels, and began, as it were, to serpentine and spiralize. As I sat there at my ease, cross-legged on the deck, after the bitter exertion at the windlass, under a blue tranquil sky, the ship under indolent sail, and gliding so serenely along, as I bathed my hands among those soft, gentle globules of infiltrated tissues, woven almost within the hour, as they richly broke to my fingers and discharged all their opulence, like fully ripe grapes their wine. As I snuffed up that uncontaminated aroma, literally and truly like the smell of spring violets, I declare to you that for the time I lived as in a musky meadow, I forgot all about our horrible oath in that inexpressible sperm. I washed my hands and my heart of it, I almost began to credit the old Paracelsian superstition that sperm is of rare virtue in allaying the heat of anger. While bathing in that bath, I felt divinely free from all ill will or petulance or malice of any sort whatsoever. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze all the morning long. I squeezed that sperm till I myself almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me, and I found myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborers' hands in it, mistaking their hands for the gentle globules. Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, lovely feeling did this avocation beget, that at last I was continually squeezing their hands and looking up into their eyes sentimentally, as much as to say, "'Oh, my dear fellow beings, why should we longer cherish any social acerbities, or know the slightest ill-humor or envy?' Come, let us squeeze hands all round. Nay, let us all squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves universally into the very milk and sperm of kindness. Would that I could keep squeezing that sperm forever. For now, since by many prolonged repeated experiences, I have perceived that in all cases man must eventually lower, or at least shift, his conceit of attainable felicity, not placing it anywhere in the intellect or the fancy, but in the wife, the heart, the bed, the table, the saddle, the fireside, the country. Now that I have perceived all this, I am ready to squeeze case eternally. In thoughts of the visions of the night, I saw long rows of angels in paradise, each with his hands in a jar of spermaceti. Now, while discoursing of sperm, it behooves to speak of other things akin to it, in the business of preparing the sperm whale for the triworks. First comes white horse, so-called, which is obtained from the tapering part of the fish, and also from the thicker portions of his flukes. It is tough with congealed tendons, a wad of muscle, but still contains some oil. After being severed from the whale, the white horse is first cut into portable oblongs, ere going to the mincer. They look much like blocks of Berkshire marble. Plum pudding is the term bestowed upon certain fragmentary parts of the whale's flesh, here and there, adhering to the blanket of blubber, and often participating to a considerable degree in its unctuousness. It is a most refreshing, convivial, beautiful object to behold. As its name imports, it is of an exceedingly rich, 
mottled tint, with a bestreaked snowy and golden ground, dotted with spots of the deepest crimson and purple. It is plums of rubies in pictures of citron. Spite of reason, it is hard to keep yourself from eating it. I confess that once I stole behind the foremast to try it. It tasted something as I should conceive a royal cutlet from the thigh of Louis Le Gros might have tasted, supposing him to have been killed the first day after the venison season, and that particular venison season contemporary with an unusually fine vintage of the vineyards of Champagne. There is another substance, and a very singular one, which turns up in the course of this business, but which I feel it to be very puzzling adequately to describe. It is called Slobgallion, an Appalachian origin with the whaleman, and even so is the nature of the substance. It is ineffably oozy, stringy affair, most frequently found in the tubs of sperm after a prolonged squeezing and subsequent decanting. I hold it to be the wondrously thin, ruptured membranes of the case, coalescing. Gurry, so-called, is a term properly belonging to right whalemen, but sometimes incidentally used by the sperm fishermen. It designates the dark, glutinous substance, which is scraped off the back of the Greenland, or right whale, and much of which covers the decks of those inferior souls who hunt that ignoble leviathan. Nippers. Strictly this word is not indigenous to the whale's vocabulary, but as applied by whalemen it becomes so, a whaleman's nipper is a short, firm strip of tendinous stuff cut from the tapering part of Leviathan's tail. It averages an inch in thickness, and for the rest is about the size of the iron part of a hoe. Edgewise moved along the oily deck, it operates like a leathern squeegee, and by nameless blandishments, as of magic, allures along with it all impurities. But to learn all about these matters... Your best way is at once to descend into the blubber room and have a long talk with its inmates. This place has previously been mentioned as the receptacle for the blanket pieces when stripped and hoisted from the whale. When the proper time arrives for cutting up its contents, this apartment is a scene of terror, especially by night. On one side, lit by a dull lantern, a space has been left clear for the workmen, they generally go in pairs, a pike and gathman and a spademan. The whaling pike is similar to a frigate's boarding weapon of the same name. The gaff is something like a boat hook. With his gaff, the gaffman hooks on to a sheet of blubber and strives to hold it from slipping as the ship pitches and lurches about. Meanwhile, the spademan stands on the sheet itself, perpendicularly chopping it into the portable horse pieces, this spade is sharp, as hone can make it. The spademan's feet are shoeless. The thing he stands on will, sometimes irresistibly, slide away from him, like a sledge. If he cuts off one of his own toes, or one of his assistants, would you be very much astonished? Toes are scarce among veteran blubberer men. Chapter 95 The Cassock had you stepped on board the Pequod at a certain juncture of this post-mortemizing of the whale, and had you strolled forward nigh the windlass, pretty sure I am that you would have scanned, with no small curiosity, a very strange, ignomatical object, which you would have seen there, lying along lengthwise in the lee scuppers. 
not the wondrous cistern in the whale's huge head, not the prodigy of his unhinged lower jaw, not the miracle of his symmetrical tail. None of these would so surprise you as half a glimpse of that unaccountable cone, longer than a Kentuckian is, tall, nigh a foot in diameter at the base, and jet black as Yojo, the ebony idol of Queequeg. And an idol indeed it is, or rather in old times its likeness was. Such an idol as that found in the secret groves of Queen Maka and Judah, and for worshipping which King Asa, her son, did depose her, and destroyed the idol, and burnt it for an abomination at the brook Kedron, as darkly set forth in the fifteenth chapter of the first book of Kings. Look at the sailor, called the Mincer, who now comes along, and assisted by two allies, heavily backs the Grand Isimus, as the mariners call it, and with bowed shoulders staggers off with it, as if he were a grenadier carrying a dead comrade from the field. Extending it upon the forecastle deck, he now proceeds syndrically to remove its dark pelt, as an African hunter the pelt of a boa. This done, he turns the pelt inside out, like a pantaloon leg, gives it a good stretching, so almost to double its diameter, and at last hangs it, well spread, in the rigging to dry. Ere long, it is taken down, when removing some three feet of it towards the pointed extremity, and then cutting two slits for armholes at the other end, he lengthwise slips himself bodily into it. The mincer now stands before you invested in the full canicles of his calling. Immemorial to all his order, this investiture alone will adequately protect him, while employed in the peculiar functions of his office. That office consists in mincing the horse pieces of blubber for the pots, an operation which is conducted at a curious wooden horse, planted endwise against the bulwarks, and with a tub beneath it, into which the minced pieces drop, fast as the sheets from a wrapped order's desk. Arrayed in decent black, occupying a conspicuous pulpit, intent on Bible leaves, what a candidate for an archbishop, what a lad for a pope were this mincer. Bible leaves, Bible leaves, this is the invariable cry from the mates to the mincer. It enjoins him to be careful and cut his work into as thin slices as possible, inasmuch as by so doing the business of boiling out the oil is much accelerated, and its quantity considerably increased, besides, perhaps, improving it in quality. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.